0: Hello and welcome. My name is Leva Bonnevi and this is episode four from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Today I have invited the Canadian trainer Dave Thind. He holds a German trainer A license and an international trainer's passport level three. He's a Grand Prix level competition rider in dressage and jumping, a biomechanics expert and last but not least, he's a guild certified Feldenkrais practitioner. And that is the main focus of today's episode. To me, Feldenkrais was just a word, until I realized that the idea behind the method is a perfect match for writers. To quote Feldenkrais himself, it is all about making the impossible possible, the possible easy, and the easy beautiful. So, Dave, welcome to my show. Um, we met for the first time around a decade ago in Norway. I rode classical research on Spanish horses at the time. And you gave me a couple of very valuable riding lessons. And I've since followed you on and off on social media. And when I decided to make an English version of my Norwegian podcast, your name was on my guest list from the start. For many reasons, but for one reason in particular. It is my belief that you have a very valuable perspective to offer when the goal is to inspire riders to improve their seat through increased body awareness. For what is riding if you're not truly connected with both your own body and the body of the horse? I also like the fact that you offer riders corona-friendly ways to improve their riding from home. And I would really like us to explore how riders can reclaim the softness they were born with and take a closer look at the nervous system-friendly approach to the classical seat.
1: Sure. Well, thank you very much for that warm welcome. And it's a pleasure to be here with you and have a chance to discuss with you today. Um, And I think that was, I have to say, one of the things that really struck me about what you said was bringing people back to their natural way of moving a softness. Um, This is actually, so of course, I'll introduce myself and, tell you a bit about myself, but the two things that I'm educated in is, of course, I have a trainer background in education from Germany in classical writing, but also I went later and did a four-year education as a Feldenkrais practitioner. And what that method is, it's about learning about movement and improving our way of moving, but not just movement as a we're going to stretch and we're going to exercise it's a nervous system retraining of sorts so we learn to go back to that innate way of learning the way the toddlers do by moving and exploring it's very little to do about what's right and what's wrong it's also a learning a learning curve in learning how to learn so it's it comes across valuable not only just for riding and working with horses with pain, posture, any of that stuff, but it's really about a way of learning. Um, And as an educator, as a riding instructor, it's very important for me both for the horse and for the rider that I do my job and educate. And by educating, there is a certain feeling of, you want the student to find independence. And I don't want my students both horses or riders to be reliant on me in that way. Otherwise, I'm not doing my job. So I think this is where my my personal work is quite different. So um, as you heard, I'm working with the rider seat, the body, the movement, but it's really about learning to learn. And Dr. Feldenkrais, who invented the Feldenkrais method, one of his famous quotes was that he would be our last teacher. And he elaborated, of course, not because he's the best teacher, but because from his method, we learn to learn. And, um, yeah, I'm lucky enough sometimes to get a chance to work with some trainers I respect that come for clinics. Um, and, you know, I was in Florida last winter. There's some wonderful trainers there. I spent some time in Germany on and off. Um And now, because of the the technology that we have, I'm also able to get lessons myself online. So um, I continue my learning in that way. And um, most of my work is online, teaching riding, teaching Feldenkrais privately, group lessons. And yes, I do travel still for clinics, but that's, yeah, a lot has changed in 10 years. So I hope all of that gives you a little bit of a, roundabout answer of who i am and what i'm doing and what i'm teaching and um
0: and for people like me who are um not very familiar with the feldenkrais method some people would say it's a way of exercising some people would call it yoga
1: for me it was you know i found feldenkrais over 20 years ago when i was injured um and that event in my life uh, that led to that, I probably, like most people, would have never heard of Feldenkrais. It's not something that's, you know, well known in most countries. There are some countries where more people know about it. Uh, But mostly people find it for that very issue, having pain or injury. They want a rehab process. And um, often in the Feldenkrais world for that, not so much in writing, because there's quite a few of us now that are I think bringing this work out there and for obvious reasons, what you just said, it's sort of like, wow, this is made for riding. Um, it's used in other sports as well, but I think it's starting to be, become recognized in the riding world. So you're not necessarily in pain when you come to Feldenkrais. So you're not necessarily at that to make the impossible possible stage. Um, you know, So basically it doesn't matter where you start, whether you're at the impossible to become possible, the possible to become easy or the easy to become beautiful and elegant. And I think there's even higher levels after that. So the subtleties that we learn and regardless of whatever movement pattern you want to improve or function. So it's based on function. Um, And just to give you a bit of an idea of how it's taught, there's two forms of Feldenkrais lessons. So it's not therapy. We differentiate We don't call ourselves therapists, even though some people say it's a bit like physiotherapy or as you say, some people say it's a bit like yoga. I suppose it's a bit like yoga, gentle yoga or tai chi in that it's slow, gentle movement. But the emphasis is really about learning and not about the movements.
0: Are you then talking about physical learning, like teaching the body or intellectual learning or both? Uh,
1: It would be physical learning because it's really not trying to learn the way most adults do or book learning or any of that type of stuff. I think it can help you if you're interested in biomechanics and want to learn about which muscles do what and all of that stuff. But it's an internal way of learning that you learn by moving. Um, So it becomes your own personal experience where you notice how certain things go together. Um, And we do a lot of Try it on one side, do it a couple of times, focus, for example. So if I wanted to do a side bend, for example, I just chose that out of anything because of how I'm sitting. Um, What is involved in side bend? So I could, where do I start it from? For example, I could start side bend from the weight of my head. I could start it from my eyes, bringing attention to where I want to go. I could start it by moving my ribs away. I could start it by thinking about lifting my hip. I could start it, because right now my legs are crossed, but if I had my legs down, I could also start it by pushing with the right leg. And then now when I go to side bend, my self-image of the whole thing is more clear. So we improve timing, we improve the coordination, we improve suppleness. Breathing is part of this. Um, he also taught that the emotions and posture are together. They're basically one and so much so that the emotion cannot exist without the coinciding posture. So this is really of interest, I think, for most people's self-development, whether it's for writing or anything. We all have, you know, our pasts and emotions are part of the human condition, good or bad. They're all there to serve us. And, um, you know, just learning about those connections and how to become, you know, more present as well. So this is, of course, he had some influence from the East, but his background in um, he was born in the Ukraine, but uh, was Israeli and uh, a doctor of physics and engineering and um, Europe's first judo black belt and his interest in movement and ease of movement came from that. Why is it that certain martial artists can do very difficult, almost impossible maneuvers, and then for someone else, it's very difficult and impossible. So rather than you know just writing it off as natural talent or they learned early, he thought that humans had an equal learning capacity, of course, without any injury or something in the way, And he was very optimistic about this, that given the right learning opportunities that just about anybody can do anything. And this is wonderful for, I think in the the horse sport where there's so much emotion um, because we love our horses. There's a lot of emotion involved in it. It's not a very uh, rational thing in the sense that it's, it's such a hard sport to have success in. And whether I call it the sport or the art or the hobby, just keeping horses healthy, sound, happy, and that is a difficult task. Um, And the whole thing, starting with breeding horses, it's a difficult task. So horse ownership and having goals and dreams and emotions, I think all of this is, um, it comes together with the Feldman Prize that you can improve your way of moving, your way of communicating. Uh, We, of course, also touch on how the parts of the nervous system, so whether we're activating our flight response, our fight response, our freeze response. So the basic, we can't say that you're either in the parasympathetic or the sympathetic part of the nervous system, the two work together. But of course, all of the reflexes that we have that have something to do with what ancient man would do if you know a rock is falling on the head. Do they do something with their head to protect their head? um, If they feel that somebody or something is coming to bite or uh, attack the throat. So hiding or shortening the throat latch. So mostly all that has to do with flexion or shortening the front. So it's actually the usage more or less of the front of the abdominals. This has to do with some kind of fear or protection mechanism. So some kind of closing. So we know this, you know we talk about it very loosely, that people go into a fetal position when they're nervous. But if we think about it like this, it's so clear. Why are we doing it? It's about protect the head. Very, very important, important goods. We don't want to fall because game over. If you... Um, or to lose, you know, falling is very difficult. So of course we have to all deal with the fear of falling. Some people think they're not afraid of falling off their horse, but of course they are. This is how we learn to get on our feet and stand is because we were afraid of falling and we know how to protect ourselves from hitting our head. So even if it's there at a very small level, this is why people grab with their hands, have tight legs around their horses, have difficulty breathing, You sometimes see it in the eyes, the way the eyes work. Um, All of these things are quite deeply coordinated and ingrained over, you know, evolution. And if, again, back to this ancient man, the way they use their eyes, if, you know, they span the horizon and they say, oh, yes, I'm safe here. So the movement up here, similar to our horses, when they're soft in the pole, they're able to feel that they're safe just goes together. And when there's something locked and tight here, just like our horses, they feel nervous. What I'm talking about specifically is that in our case, the, the ability to basically do a yes and a no type movement, so that I won't get too much into the anatomy, but if there's a fixed position, either because we're scared and shocked and the eyes go with it, Um, you know, the tongue, the jaw, all these things are going together right away. The breathing is different. We're ready. There's something wrong. Flight, fight, freeze. Um, And this is why having soft eyes as Sally Swift talked about in her centered writing work, um, you know, is crucial, but I have to point out, you know, not to point fingers at certain types of writing or certain techniques or beliefs, but strong bits and artificial head carriage and fixed positions, you can't expect your horse not to um, go into that part of the nervous system. People complain that their horses are hot or spooky or whatever, and they'll fix the head position, but they don't realize that they're actually invoking those responses. Um yeah, so it's a very deep way of thinking about it, but it all actually is science-based. Um, it's just going with what is naturally there, understanding it. And uh, this isn't different from what normal classical riding is. We talk about classical riding is based on the natural biomechanics of the horse and rider, the responses of the nervous system. And this is just a tool that I've found that the two fit together.
0: Would you say it would be some kind of reprogramming of the body?
1: You know, it's something that I actually will use that term. Um, whether we call it a reprogramming or reset. So I'm going with what you said earlier about the what's naturally there. What we're trying to do is go back to what's naturally there, naturally available. Um, it's not necessarily we also don't try to correct or even look at ourselves in that way that we want to fix something. Uh, One of his quotes is to correct is incorrect. And whether that is to do with um, the practitioner working with the student, we never, he actually was very important, you know, very, very, very adamant to never make his students feel that they were wrong. So one of the things, for example, we use is, Uh, with this to correct is incorrect thing, how we're different from exercise, physio, or whatever it is, whatever we find that is undesirable. So let's put it that way, instead of saying it's something bad or wrong, or I don't want to. And even then, I would hesitate to call it undesirable. I would maybe talk about, well, on one side of the body, the function is more there's, there's a quality to it that we prefer or we like, or there's an ease. So our work, we're always looking for ease. Why? Because the nervous system, all life strives for ease. So understanding that, it's not that we're lazy and want comfort. We, we talk a lot about that, but we do everything in the Feldenkrais work is about comfort easy, maybe even lazy, because hard work we don't believe is necessary, necessarily better. Um, and, you know, thinking of the whole situation, that is it that society taught a certain person to work hard and therefore they act like that. Um, or in terms of posture, where they taught that a certain posture is better. So you'll meet Feldenkrais practitioners from all over the world we don't sit with inflated postures. Um, and the reason being is we know, we just we wanna be more in a central place, just like a mar- martial artist would move from the middle to the left, to the right, to duck, to go up, rather than being sort of positioned as a postural thing. Because as soon as you start to think posture, you're, it's at the expense of function, or at the expense of all these natural things that I was talking about, that just are supposed to happen because the wiring is there for that. Um, So to go clarify again on this rewiring, um, I really think it's just optimizing what's really naturally there available to the person specifically, but also to humans in general. So we have, um, we share a lot of movement patterns. So the patterns that we use for movement, um for example i talked about side bend we have rotation we have flexion and we have extension and we could possibly add that there's some twisting but that's actually components of the same thing and then there's the idea but those basic movement patterns are what all of our movement is based on whether it's riding walking sitting standing you name it whatever sport um you know, so these are recurring themes that we use more or less as a language and how the inflection on the language is, is of course, speed, coordination, breath, eyes, and then you add the element of emotion and maybe the socioeconomic background or upbringing of that person or what country. So there's a lot of factors, but it all basically is the same.
0: So... uh... It sounds like you through this work uh, has turned also uh, out to be a good reader of people. So when I arrive with my horse in the arena and I mount the horse, you already know quite a bit about me just by reading my body.
1: Uh, I think so. And, you know, this is hopefully one of the skills I already had when I met you back then. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) But it's, it's something that I'm cautious about because it's first of all, you don't make judgment. Uh, or make presumptions. Um,
0: But are you allowed to guess?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think guessing, but of course, we're also as Feldenkrais practitioners taking a scientific approach to this. So we also try to prove ourselves wrong. Because if we think we're so clever and we know everything right away, we have nothing to learn. So by having a scientific hypothesis, you also... The duty is that you need to be able to verify from various directions.
0: Yeah, so it keeps you humble.
1: I think so, absolutely. And we all have our, um, and also the role we have. We don't have this role. um, For example, as I was explaining, we will work with someone in person. We do something called functional integration. So if you came to see me, of course, I'm trained to observe you, how you use your words, how you use your eyes, your breathing, the postures that come with whatever you're telling me about. Not unlike other you know, therapies that you might go to. And I say the therapies because we're trying to do classes or lessons instead of a therapy session. And that's what we call it as a lesson. So the functional integration lesson is you were to, if you were to come see me and tell me that well, I have such and such issue, I have a pain, we would see it. But usually if the hip is hurting, it's not the hip. We'll end up finding something else that we can improve the function of the whole system in order to improve what it ended up becoming a problem in the hip or the back or whatever. Um, So I will use in-person a hands-on technique called functional integration where we have mostly our students laying on a hard table. So not a massage table. And the reason a hard table is we do a lot of the work laying down out of gravity so that we're out of our regular, I must stand up and be whoever I think I am. So not just to be out of gravity that we don't have to work, but also we can just be a skeleton more or less breathing, moving and the work is really about the nervous system and learning. But if we wanted to say, is it about muscles? Is it about the skeleton? It's more about the skeleton than it is about muscles. So this is, again, why the laying down is helpful. So I would work with someone 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And then we integrate with a little bit of a awareness through movement lesson. These are the lessons that I teach in groups. And now, of course, on Zoom and groups are uh, also privately online and we have over a thousand awareness through movement lessons that so they're quite limitless in how many combinations and variations but they all have a function so just as I said there's a functional integration lesson we have the awareness through movement lesson so it's not just the awareness there's a whole goal in learning a certain function within that learn awareness And the cool thing about it is that we do no fixing, but on a regular basis, you see people come in, quote, crooked and end up very symmetrical. So we don't go look for the symmetry, but we get it because we present the case to the nervous system from the right to the left, the right to the left, back and forth, or left to the right, uh, up and down, down and up. So from every direction. And the nervous system is given the choice or the option to examine what is a better function, what is easier, what makes more sense. And then it becomes something spontaneous rather than rehearsed. So for the riding, the goal is not to go memorize this and go ride and ride better. It's wow. I sit better. I sit smoother. I can follow the horse. I don't find that I'm as nervous as I used to be. Um, the pain is gone, or if you're an upper level rider, wow, I can really feel the hind legs in the Piaf Passage transitions or the tempi changes, they become easier. If you're a jumping rider, you have better balance and better hand-eye coordination. Um, And if you're a hobby rider, just to feel your horse better and maybe start to feel what's happening underneath and behind you. Because of course, the more we feel our bodies and these subtle connections, you feel more of what the horse is doing.
0: Sounds like the Feldenkrais method was almost invented by a rider. Do you kind of also use it with the horses? Because it does sound like uh, a textbook for giving a horse a sound and happy life.
1: So um, just before the call, I had my veterinarian here and she met my 25 year old horse. And she was saying that um, he defies all laws of aging and oh my God, he is a nice horse. He was born with a good basic foundation. He's well-bred. There wasn't a, um, there wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. Let's put it that way. He was very well thought out, but he's always been wonderful, but he worked hard. He was a Grand Prix jumping horse. So I bought him with my sister back when he was six months old and he's almost 25 now. Um, And at the time I was a jumping rider. And he did the Grand Prix, so it was he did the job that we wanted. He was also a breeding stallion. And um, he's trained to pretty high-level dressage, and he's being ridden still six days a week. Normally speaking, I think horses that have had that hard work, they don't look like him or move like him. So I'm not going to take the credit because, as I said, the genetics were there, the the, the basic quality of the horse. But I've always been careful using whatever knowledge I have or I can find from other people, help, whether it's, you know, good chiropractic that's gentle, osteopathy, massage, acupuncture. So the horses have always had this type of work done. And of course, my way of thinking is that I'm trying to improve the function or reset, uh, reprogram, reset. Why is the horse crooked? Why is the horse stiff? Can I make it more even? So, all of these questions have always been there and improving myself because if I'm crooked, the horse is crooked or I'm causing the saddle to be crooked and therefore the horse to be crooked. And, um, you know, I think in my case, because I've been doing this work for a long time, one of our goals in Feldenkrais is to act as an accurate measuring device. By that, are we really in the middle? And if we do something to, really weigh what is happening left and right, not, not specifically weigh, but measure, this is what we're doing. Not just the reins, which is an obvious example, but what is the horse doing on the left shoulder versus the right shoulder, or the hind leg versus the other, or the one diagonal versus the other, or in the side bending, in the ribs. So you're always evaluating these things and trying to feel it, And not really fix things, but make them more evenly available. And that is our goal in terms of posture, that things are evenly available. And therefore, you reduce the wear and tear on what's being used too much. So as what I was talking about the hip earlier, usually where there's a pain, it's because the person uses it too much. And in a regular way of thinking, you try to make the let's just say that the side bend again was very very easy and limited on the one side we would try to let's make this other side learn it and do it and stretch it but what we would first do in Feldenkrais is let's learn how we do that the easy side first allowing the nervous system to learn from what it's already able to do so the hands-on work would maybe spend some time on the ribs Something with the shoulder girdle, the clavicle, you know, and what are the options and how is it if we create a resistance? And then the brain has to follow and find these, um, I guess, to work around the obstacles. And then again, we make it even more clear, more variations, possibly in rotation. And that is supposed to inform the other side. So, we rarely will go in to try to make something improve it by doing more with something that it doesn't want to do. And, you know, possibly the lesson would be lengthening on one side, shortening on the other, just making it crystal clear, spelling it out. Um, sometimes in a follow up lesson, we then reverse the role. But usually the first thing is to go with the pattern. That's a strong, strong piece in my training of the horses, is I don't try to force them to bend or do whatever it is that they're not able to do. I take what they can do, even if it's a small amount of whatever it is. And that little zone becomes more elastic and bigger. And you can play with this over time. And if you add that to, you know, muscles and skeletal function, the capacity of the animal starts to be more like a younger horse or a more talented horse or a better coordinated horse. And, you know, that's, yes, I'm teaching this through my riding, um, the way the questions that are asked of the horses, um, how they're suppled on a daily basis, because if they come out exactly the same stiff every day and you do exactly the same bend the neck, bend the this, do that, or even carrot stretch, for example, you're trying to fix something, as opposed to work with the brain, the nervous system to keep recalibrating, and in a way stay young. So I think the horse absolutely, for many reasons, is showing proof, Um, and I've had a few horses, as you know, the older ones doing well and coming to me um, with previous problems in their body and in their training and mental issues. So, um, yeah, I think that's absolutely one of my, I don't want to be responsible to ride a horse and cause them issues just because I want to ride because then I don't want to sit on them. You know, it's just for me, it's my job. I'm not trying to scare people that don't get on unless you're perfect. That's not the case. But if I'm feeling crooked and stiff, I don't get on. I need to know that I'm not going to make my horse crooked and stiff because I'm feeling crooked and stiff. Um, Just like someone who's in a bad mood shouldn't ride. And um, I think for me, riding horses, they never asked for it. We bred them for it. It's sort of, that's just how it is. But if we're going to ride them, classical riding has the capacity to make the horse better because we ride them. More equal left and right, inc- increase their longevity. Whether if it's for selfish reasons that we would like to ride them longer, or they have to have a longer shelf life in a way, but you know we keep them in conditions that are not natural. Uh, I'm not going to say anything ag- against that because that's how I keep my horses, and I've I think that the decision of breeding sport horses or riding horses was made well before my time. And these are the horses that are available now and that's how they behave. And that's what their reactions are. Sure. They have natural horse reactions, but they would probably not survive. Well, loose and outside, you know, they're just, that's the fault of man-made breeding, if you want to say it. But um, so I think to make it as natural as possible, these very, Primitive reflexes, uh, you know, according to flight. Um, and, you know, of course, the body's way of radiating towards ease and safety um, and feelings of comfort and moving away from fear and discomfort. This is the same for us. This is the same for them. Doesn't matter if they were, you know, wild horses or bred to be riding horses. So, again, why this method works. Um, and training them and keeping them supple.
0: You said something about going from make to ask. I'm always intrigued and interested to know if you were in that make the horse do it part of the horse world and, and came over to the ask or wait for the horse, what triggered that transition from make to ask for you?
1: It's a very deep question. We could talk about this for an hour. And and, and in Feldenkrais, we actually say that... Um, the answer to most questions is it depends. And usually the other answer is the pelvis. I probably stand in the middle because um, it's not that I want to make horses to do things, but I also don't believe in fairy tale training. Um, and, you know, I'm not where I'm standing, it could easily say that I point fingers and say, well, other people force horses and other people are fairy tale. So I'm not saying, I really am saying it respectfully that in my current situation for what I'm doing and for what I'm teaching, what resonates true to me, and this is really important because it's my experience. And of course, if people pay me for my opinion, this is what they're getting. But there's so many ways. So for the types of horses and the objectives that I'm working with, I think it's very important to recall that they're horses. And by that, I mean that their natural reflex to have a leader or their desire to have a leader. And um, in a herd, most horses want to have a leader. So this older horse that I had mentioned, he does not want to have a leader. Uh, He was a breeding stallion and quite difficult as a youngster as well. And uh, you cannot make him do anything. So this story about, um, you know, I don't like to tell horses to do things, but, you know, this tell a gelding what to do, ask a mare and negotiate with the stallion. So with him, it was very careful negotiating uh, for years.
0: But that's, that's through all his life or because in my experience, they tend to be more and more uh, going their own way with age. So they're more uh, flexible when they're younger. And when, as they grow older, they go more and more like, I'm the captain. And you're just master's mates.
1: This has actually decreased with age for him. And I don't know if you believe in that type of thing, but there's, you know, these ideas of training horses according to their Chinese personality type. So whether it's a fire horse or, yeah, Ingrid Klimke, Olympic rider from Germany, teaches workshops with a vet on this subject to recognize what personality type do you have according to this Chinese model. Um, so I, I don't know a lot about it but basically there's the fire type there's the wood type and the thought here is that they can change and then evolve so usually the difficult horses according to that model as they get older they're more mellow but anyhow so he did not want to be told anything and he had hormones that were really making him he would have been the leading stallion that would fight with other stallions in the wild and win so it was it wasn't you know Wasn't a weakling stallion, let's put it that way. So uh, he's no longer a stallion. He was castrated at age 12 when I was living in Europe because he was too difficult for people to handle. But anyhow, um, yeah, he was a very good teacher to me because I was probably more of a passive rider to begin with. So growing up in Canada, learning to ride there, we have a system of training that's quite passive uh, based on riding thoroughbreds from the racetrack or what we call them over here racetrack rejects so you have mental and physical basket cases um, that you should not touch too much in the mouth you shouldn't sit heavy on them and they're very flighty so you learn to be calm Um, I had luckily a martial arts background before getting into riding and I would say that I was a little bit of a cautious rider not the one that wanted to go running and be wild and I also wanted to do it, quote, the right way. So because of all these conditions, um, I think I was a quiet listening rider to begin with. And um, having one of these young horses test or create dangerous situations or various, you, of course, are are taught that you need to become the leader. But maybe, I, I don't think I was... I was quite fortunate that I never met the wrong people. I had very good people helping me and sort of form my basics. And of course, then I was interested and I still am in the German classical way of riding. And you know, I think some people stereotypically think the German way is forceful, but it depends what we're talking about. It's a country very rich in horse tradition, equestrian art, military tradition, sport, and they have a, a tradition. You know, so because of this, there is a knowledge that's there. And I was lucky to learn uh, in a program that was led by someone who was very strong in the belief of riding horses in a classical way. And I think the good ones there are. So, yes, he was involved with competition riding. Um, Martin Pleva, the director of the school where I was at. He uh, this was one of the people I got to learn from, but he was the director of the trainer school, and it was very much centered around the mental well-being of the horse, that it should be allowed to see the outdoors, it should be out as much as possible, basically allowing for as natural conditions as possible, for stabling, feeding, you know paddock situation. The training it should be out on the country, not just in the arena. If you're a dressage horse, you, we still do jumping and uh, eventing. So he, it's not a coincidence. He had been the coach of their uh, Olympic eventing team. So his his version of the training was very, um, you know, very much based on the three components of classical riding or the Olympic sports. So we have the dressage, the cross country, and uh, the show jumping. But also, as I say, the, the art involved there, the tradition passing this along to the next generations of, you know, how to look after your horses, how to train them, how to be fair. All of these things are a very big piece of the training education in Germany. And I think um, this is, you know, often you hear this usually from the older trainers who've lived their lives and made mistakes, maybe forced some horses when they shouldn't have. Um, So I think if you have the education, that's very, very important, first of all, to have that education or some sort of education to recognize also what it is that you want to do, but being cautious not to put human emotions on a horse or project those or dog-like emotions because it's a herd animal. And their reactions are based as a horse um, and not as a human, not as... And this is, again, my opinion. But uh, I think they're wired in a way to react, possibly in a dangerous way. Um, you know, if I'm talking about, you know, the standard riding riding horse or warm blood or even a Spanish horse, they're quite big. Their responses to flight. And if they don't feel safe with their leader... Um so a leader can be very quiet we can watch horses in the wild it doesn't mean that the leader is rough so if you watch some broodmare that's very you know wise and old but she'll also threaten they sort of escalate based on a scale if something is not okay there's a young horse that's jumping on her and misbehaving and not fall, whatever it is that she wants to educate she will use her body language and there is the first Level of that, the second level. So, whether it starts with a little bit of a tail swish and maybe the ears go back, um, and then maybe, you know, there's a bit of a let's let me show my gums and my teeth, and it will escalate to a sharp, loving broodmare kick. That's that's how they work. That's just my opinion. And, you know, I don't think that that at all has anything to do with how we interact with humans, uh, nor does it have anything to do with you know, an animal like a dog. So I think for every person, they'll land on their own way. But in my experience, there's a a gap between sometimes those who mean well, they don't accept what a horse naturally is. And um, yeah, this is why I say I'm in the middle. I'm not one to force horses, but I'm also uh, not going to deny that there has to be consequence when we're discussing uh, much like the loving broodmare. And I'm not talking rough, but sure. I wear spurs. I have a whip. um, And I don't say that it's uh, wrong to use it, but it's wrong to use it if it's not leading up and following through on a conversation. And there should never be emotion in the mix. We're not fighting. We're not angry. There's just the clarity. And, the last thing I should say on this is that if you know your body well, you also know: did I breathe and get tight and stiff, or can I be neutral? Um, because if you you know that type of martial artist type neutral quietness to, you, if you can be there almost Zen like, and recognize that you can in an artistic way, in a trained way, in a high level of classical education. Use these tools. So whips and spurs are not meant to be used when the rider doesn't make sense what they're saying and they don't think the horse is answering, and the horses become cold because they're giving conflicting aids, then it's absolutely not fair. Um, but yeah, that's just that's just my and this is for me at my level, what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make the horses answer to whispers. I don't want to yell with my AIDS, I don't want to be very loud as a personality when I'm around them. I try to keep my energy down and quiet, uh, humble, You know, watching my posture as well, how I approach them, how I touch them, what's the intention. So one of the other things in Feldenkrais is we don't even try to fix. When we touch somebody, we meet them where they are respectfully and we're not trying to fix, we're not trying to correct. And our way of moving is, to help, is what we use to teach and educate. But as I say, I make the differentiation between what is a horse and what is a human because uh, a badly behaving, very large animal can become dangerous. And um, this is where my role as both a Feldenkrais practitioner where to correct is incorrect, which resonates very strongly with me, but I understand how horses learn as well.
0: So how, how do you cope with uh, a very common challenge? I mean, a lot of... The majority of horses will be followers, not natural leaders. But you can say the same, same thing about humans. And that's something that I often see in my end, that we we are told to be the leader of the horse, but that's not a natural role for all of us. And then you have that very interesting conflict where the person is trying to really claim, I am your leader, but it's coming from nowhere. So how... It sounds like through the Feldenkrais method, you can also build your self confidence to lead.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I think the first thought that comes to mind is the appropriate horse for that person. So if it's somebody that has that type of personal struggle, you know, maybe then they need, uh, you know, a horse that would be used for. I don't know what to say, but often people buy too much of a horse than they need. Um, or a horse that's meant for someone with more experience. And then the, with the breeds, they're different. You know, and I don't want to make generalizations like that, but yes, there are generalizations with the breeds. Um, so the right size, the right breed, the right age. For someone who's very nervous and wants to learn, they should be given the opportunity to learn on a maybe a bit co- colder, less reactive babysitter type horse so that they can be given the right opportunities to develop the self-confidence. And I think that's actually where it goes. So I ended up with a racehorse, you know, <laughs> um, that was my first horse and my sister and I bought this horse. And it was a funny story. We'd been riding a year and he'd actually won as a thoroughbred racehorse at Woodbine in Toronto. So it wasn't a slow poke. And uh, we ended up with him and that was fine, but, you know, at the time I I broke my neck. I actually didn't know at the time I found out that there was a fracture when I had hurt my back later, but I I know when it happened, the horse unfortunately had been taught to be whipped if he stopped at a jump. This is a good example of the wrong type of training, but the trainer at that point was not very experienced. It was my first trainer. He was a nice guy, but you know, he was still struggling and what he was trying to do. And he borrowed our horse, which we thought was fantastic. We got free training in a way and took him to a jumping show and buried him too close, wrong distance into a Swedish oxer and the horse fell into it. So now he's terrified, doesn't want to jump. So we don't know what's good training and not good training. And he's now bringing him to the jump. And if the horse stops, he whips him. So, Okay, this is how you train a horse when you're a kid and you don't know. And that's the trainer. So now he's been doing this and I'm very long and out of balance. And I was not natural. This same guy actually told me I wasn't made to sit on a horse when he first met me and sort of laughed about it. So now I'm on this horse and the horse has learned that he gets whipped quite hard. I mean, really I'm not talking about something, um, cruel or mean, but okay, he gets a whip and he should jump. But I'm not that person. I was a child, you know, a kid still. And I was, you know, as I said, worrisome. And I did, this was not me to whip him even. So the horse stopped, I lost my balance, ended up on his neck, feet, legs were, and then the horse jumped because now it's, Oh yeah, the whip is coming. Um, I didn't even bring the whip out. I went flying, landed on my face first, legs flipped over. So that's when I had the fracture. Um, but to give you an example, back to this gentleman that I was talking about in Germany, uh, I saw him very strongly scold somebody for whipping their horse for stopping. And he said, you never do that. Why do you want to give the horse a bad experience and punish them? So this goes back to that Feldenkrais idea of animals, people, we radiate towards what's comfortable. Um, so as much as I talked about being consequent and being horse-like, I always want to bring them back to something comfortable because there's no training involved if you show them discomfort or punishment. So that's, I think, a very good example. So I'm glad we got to talk about that because there's two different ways to do the same type of thing. One seems like the other, but they're very different. Um, I remember back then as well, the veterinarian that we had, um, the horse was not okay in his body. And it was, yeah, there was even suspicion whether it was a real vet check or not or whatever. But it got me very interested to know in confirmation, in uh, soundness. So I got very interested. That's how I ended up with this beautiful, nice uh, young horse because now I wanted, I knew I didn't want a thoroughbred racehorse I wanted something with very good confirmation. Uh, I wanted, you know, all these things that I found out that I would prefer to have. Of course, I also wanted to jump and all kinds of things. But I think when you know more clearly what it is you want, what you need, and there's good help. So I remember the veterinarian after said, this is terrible you were sold such a horse. People quit riding because of that you know, so it it worked out. It really did work out. I think he was a super good horse for me at the time, but for most people, yes, they would quit riding. One, he was dangerous, uh, all kinds of physical problems. But luckily for me, I learned from that and learned that I wanted to learn about physical issues in horses. Uh, So yeah, I think it was my perfect journey, but back to that person who wants to learn to ride. They're not a natural leader. They're horses for them, colder horses, horses suitable for lesson programs, and any trainer that has, um, that they do their job right, they will help match the horse and the rider. So important. But yes, Feldenkrais will help develop um, all of that off of your horses, but I think so important that riders are given the right opportunity, meaning uh, safe, comfortable, comfortable also in how they're being taught no screaming uh, no force on their own time stop before it gets overwhelming physically or mentally that it's something comfortable to go back to and you know everyone is at their own place and when they start and we're all beginners at some point point. and as i was saying we all have natural fears of falling and whatever we have um, but yeah, it's, it's a tough one. So yes, trying to be the leader, a fair leader. I think there is a capacity in that for most people to learn. But by that, what I'm saying is that the human is in charge of their emotions. The human is in charge of their fears. But they also have to be given a chance. Everyone has to learn. Not everyone can get on and be totally zen and be in charge of all these things so if someone is learning as an adult uh, or even a child learning they should just be given the right circumstances and then if they can learn to be comfortable so the fear is usually the case where people are not able to be themselves or to be calm uh, or quiet so uh, if they feel comfortable they don't feel unsafe they don't feel that um I also think that people have to be asked questions that feel right to them. So, for the example, somebody's now asked to whip a horse when it makes no sense to them. This is not going to give that person a good feeling of being able to be a good leader because the horse just senses a big question mark. Um, and I, I, I think they feel the question mark. But as I said, everyone has to learn. And it's not that anybody just gets on a horse and they know how to be their wonderful leader where they're totally in control of their emotions, their balance, their movement. Um, So we just don't want to have, uh, you know, new riders on horses that are very sensitive to someone's thoughts, their breathing, their emotions. Um, So I tried to sensitize my horses to this because this is what i want for me but in the case of someone who's learning or the different levels and or the different objectives so as a dressage rider i want my horses to tell me when i'm wrong when i'm stiff and they get they should get crooked if i hold my breath something should go wrong if i hold too tightly they should i don't want everything to be wonderful and i just sit there and because then i can't get to that level of refinement of micro communication. And this is where I'm trying to sort of sharpen my tools all the time, always trying to become a better rider, being influenced, you know, what, what happens if I breathe and bring my tongue a little bit this way or that way? So we get very complicated with Feldenkrais if we wish to. But the basic concept is, can I use various small parts of my body that all mean the same thing? Therefore, my communication is lighter and softer with the horse. And, you know, if you combine that with the regular classical training, we know that, okay, A plus B, ab, you know, you're making your sentence based on first the letters, then the words, and then, you know, being able to make a language. But where I am in my writing, I'm trying to find... And I say trying to find because I do believe it's a lifelong learning is that beautiful balance between classical competition writing and classical art. And then I combine this with what I'm doing with the Feldenkrais, which is supposed to have a physical and mental and emotional, you know, benefit to the animal. And um, as I get older, I should feel better and better. I have no pain anymore 20 years ago. I could barely walk. I didn't ride for three years. And walking long distances was painful. And, you know, I struggled for years. And it's not something that just, poof, went away. But the Feldenkrais, absolutely. After a few years, it was, wow, my body's totally different. And it's certainly given me a totally different life because of what I can notice.
0: So So if I came to you as a student being a bit stiff being a bit crooked but being being very willing to learn what would be this is really I'm, i know it's difficult to to put it into a timeline but how long will it take to kind of give me a whole different approach to riding on the horse and the seat and everything
1: so i'll try to use um a feldenkrais mm-hmm. example to explain this so it's not even about training because again it depends you know how you have to see the rider the horse and How often are they coming? How often am I teaching? And, you know, there's a lot of... So I'll just say my age. So I'm 42. It's taken me 42 years to get to this place where I am. In order for something to change, there would have to be something very clearly favorable to my nervous system to decide to have this reset or reprogramming. Otherwise, it's some kind of forceful change through repetition, um, which takes time. There's figures on it, 10,000 repetitions or whatever. But if it's to do with a way of thinking, a way of moving, I've seen changes, significant changes in people's way of viewing themselves, their horses, their capacity. Usually with the practice of you know two or three times a week, Feldenkrais, no riding and not that they shouldn't ride when this is happening, but usually six months, it's almost a completely different person. It's it's really quite amazing. So uh, usually, uh, yeah, so that's quite a big jump and change in someone who's nervous and wants to be a better rider. Um, Yeah, six months, they start to believe that they can, they see that they can, they feel the changes. They know that change is possible. Uh, one of, another one of his quotes was, nothing is permanent except the belief that our capacity is permanent. You know, so a lot of people have this feeling that, well, that's just me, that's how it is, and I'm going to work hard and I'll try. But they identify in their self-image mm-hmm. as someone who's, it's not easy, it's difficult, I'm learning, I'm a beginner. And unfortunately, there are some trainers that don't stop that because that actually is their livelihood. In some countries more than others, I've seen the pattern that um, there's almost this keep the students needing you type approach where, uh, as I said in the beginning of our conversation, we're trying to help people learn to learn, to find their autonomy and to Uh, he talked about bringing humans back their self-dignity, you know? So you're teaching people to really sense and learn and do what's good for them to stop asking for advice, to really be able to check in with themselves and find what's true to them, what's good for them. So that whole giant change is not going to happen in six months when it's taken 42 years for, there would be, yes, quite amazing and magical changes in that way of thinking and viewing oneself and your self-image of where you think you can go, where you are, the functioning of your body, the capacity to learn, uh, the optimism. So that's wonderful. I think it's magic. It gives people uh, you know here, go and play and you know make something as you wish from there. So it's very liberating uh, also when it comes to pain. You, usually, we see significant change in pain patterns, chronic pain, within a couple of lessons, uh, and significant change again over the course of months. But if something is really compelling, I'm paraphrasing here, it can happen quite quickly. Telling um, in that the nervous system is it's so crystal clear that that is a better pattern, that is more comfortable. Um, It can happen with quite spontaneous change. But the bigger picture, the development, I think the the safer way to say it is that, you know, two or three times a week. um, And, you know, I'm not saying go see a practitioner. There's I offer recorded classes. There's other people all over the world have recorded classes. And it's quite relaxing. The general class would be, you know, you lay down, feel the way your body does you know, takes contact with the ground. What do you feel today? And you start to notice these things and you go through those movements and you get up and you feel like you're floating. Um, That was actually described in a New York Times article written by a scientist who doesn't usually write these types of articles. And she wanted to experience what Feldenkrais awareness through movement lessons were. And she said she was walking in clouds after, you know, the first two sessions, group lessons, not even private So, yeah, I don't see there's no reason not to try it. Uh, There's very good people all over the world. So I'd absolutely suggest anyone who's interested in improving, whether it's their riding, the way they stand, the way they move, um, keeping supple or being a bit more flexible. Another fascinating quote, he said, I'm not interested in flexible bodies. I'm interested in flexible minds. And... This is not something you see with people who are, you know, I'm going to stretch and I'm going to make myself better. And if I'm crooked, I'll get, you know, made, fixed or whatever it is. But to become really flexible and to know where you are and to move and self-regulating, you know, that's that's the thing that we're after is self-regulating the ability to take in information and make decisions. And, yeah, I think. Absolutely. Two or three sessions, everyone will know a bit about what it is and if it's for them. And then there's unlimited learning capacity from that.
0: It does sound like a soft path back to a door that used to be open that is now closed in a way. And if you find that door, you can sort of open it and then you will be there in an instant. But it may be a challenge to find the door.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a challenge to, to you know, uh, I love what you just said, by the way. I've, I've never heard it explained that way. It's just beautiful. Uh, but it's right there. And it was there. We're learning. This, the way of learning is exactly how babies learn. They're not listening to someone tell them to roll and do this and do that. They just It takes months. But they it, it's fast, actually, how they learn and what they learn from the state that they're born in. And what the progress is, but we stop using that way of learning. Learning through movement and experimenting and making the connections and noticing and laying down and rolling and you know all those things. Um, but it's within all of us. And sure, the door is right there, it's closed. And maybe it's even less tempting when someone like me is saying, open the door, it's fantastic. Because then it sounds like some kind of scam or some kind of, oh, this person's found some religion or something, but I believe in it that strongly that I will tell people that this can change your life, this can improve you. It doesn't matter who you are what you want. I'm not saying that everyone's going to grab hold of it and become a Feldenkrais practitioner like I did, but I do believe it can have a place at some level in improving the quality of life uh, for everybody. So that's something... Of course, I wish to tell people about the door, even if it scares them and makes them run the other way. But.
0: Yeah. Could I ask you uh, one final thing about um, through your 42 years with horses and Feldenkrais and life in general, but particularly with horses? Have you experienced something, seen something, or understood something that you really wish that everybody who dealt with horses knew?
1: it's a standard thing, but it relates to what I'm teaching and doing is that, um, if I can give an example, last week, my 14 year old niece, um, we've bought her a present to have a online lesson with Christoph Hess from Germany, who I respect a lot. He's, you know, very well regarded as a classical writing master that really tries to preserve the art and the welfare of the horses, especially within horse sport. So he's very well known for, you know, good quality riding, soft seats, soft hands, ride the horse from behind, don't force the horses, you know, all the things that you can stand for and be proud that this is what you stood for and feel good about it. So I think all these things are important, but what I would say is that my niece my niece, I try to listen to what people say to understand a bit more about what it is that I'm after. So I will tell two little stories and then I think there'll be enough to describe what it is that I'm after and what I encourage others to look for. He watched my niece and he's taught her before. He likes her writing a lot. And the comments in the beginning were that she's riding very correctly according to the training scale, meaning that the rhythm is correct, the suppleness, the mental relaxation is there. And I know he's a stickler for this in that unless you can sort of chick, you don't go anywhere, anything, unless you have the basics in place. So, okay, nothing to add. The seat is lovely. You're sitting beautifully. And the back is swinging and it's meeting all the criteria of the training scale. And he said, if we had more riders like this, warming up horses in this way and so harmonious with that type of balanced seat and softness and work with the training scale, we would have a world full of happy and healthy horses. This is what I'm looking for. You know, I can't change the world but the people I work with, this is absolutely what I'm trying to do. And um, this is where the two things go together. So it's not just about a sport or even an art or physiotherapy, but we are the custodians of the art of the horses. We have to protect them. We have to help them. We have to have everything we can do to make them better, but okay. She's 14. She's supple. Um, She broke her collarbone last year. So we dealt with some crookedness there. Uh, and I've been teaching her and I don't say this type of thing with trying to discourage someone who maybe knows that they're crooked. Yeah, you can improve. It's not a problem, but yes, we want to get on them, right? With a very good seat, good, very good harmony, beautiful communication, help them to become better versions of themselves and that then you have healthy, happy horses. And, um, the other small story I'll share is that I went for a clinic a couple of years ago with a very well-regarded trainer. And this is not for me to show off or anything, but he said, after about 10 minutes of watching, and it's a bit of a funny story, it was quite an expensive lesson. And I thought, what's well, he going to say something? It's $450 and, you know, 10 or 15 minutes have gone by. And um, he then says, okay, come to walk. And um, he says, well, I rarely see this. Almost passive to a fault, but totally in control. And I thought to myself, isn't that dressage? And then I realize what I don't like when people are trying to control. Or I don't like the passive and the horse is in control. And it becomes dangerous. So I think this is what really, you know, to, to end our conversation and especially the subject that we talked about the whole, you know, whether I'm telling horses to do things or whether I'm asking, um, and where I stand in the middle on this, it, with that whole, it depends. This is what I was, you know, probably, I remember hearing that and thinking this was fantastic for me to come here to better understand in my self image, what it is I want for my writing and what I want for my students. This, Totally passive, but totally in control. And you know, it's an art to learn that. And we, have to, we all have that capacity.
0: Dave, thank you ever so much for uh, coming on our show and talking about this very interesting subject. I wish we had hours. <laughs> but you do have a website, so it's easy for people to look you up. And also, like you said, finding other sources if they're interested in learning more about Feldenkrais and the combination of Feldenkrais and classical writing.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so as I said, there's a few of us who are practitioners who specialize in both. But if you put in my name, you can find my website and I have various course offerings and you know, there's articles and some freebies on YouTube. So um, and I'm also happy to answer questions. So if any of you uh, have questions, please don't be shy. You can reach out and I'm available to answer those questions.
0: Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, Dave.
1: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I think it's wonderful what you're bringing to the horse world. So thank you.
0: You've just heard episode four from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. But it's not yet over. Dave and I have added a bonus segment where you'll get a practical introduction to the Feldenkrais method. Please find a place where you can lay down on the floor for about 25 minutes, uninterrupted, before you listen to it, to get the full experience. Then I just want to thank my composer, Frederick Blom, my guest, Dave Thind, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.